Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. We're continuing our journey into the sociology of Buddhism, the Buddha Sasana, and particularly the social role of the monastic Sangha. We've covered the first eight of the ten bullet points of the Buddha's mission statement for the Sangha. The ninth point is the establishment of the true Dharma. Buddhism has been noted as the first world religion that has proved remarkable in its resilience, especially considering that no other religion has been able to penetrate foreign cultures without military conquest, as naturally as Buddhism. This has been possible because the integrity of the authentic Dharma is preserved in an excellent community that enjoys insularity, is strong in its practice, is sustained by the laity, and is actively involved in its own training. Something as refined as the Dharma might otherwise easily degrade into superstition, pop psychology, or religious intolerance, even in its native culture. But the anchor of the Sangha, following its discipline, the Winaya, is difficult to budge. Monastic discipline is the most archaic aspect of the Sasana, and it imposes in general, a high degree of orthodoxy on the Dharma, but has also been an occasional source of profound innovation. The integrity of scientific results is similarly preserved in an excellent community that enjoys insularity, engages in strong collaborative research, is well-supported, and is actively involved in its own education. Something as refined as science might otherwise easily degrade into the superstition, magic, or wild speculation from which it arose in the first place. But it doesn't, even though the oddest notions about the domain of science are rampant outside of the firmly planted scientific community. Scientific results differ markedly from Dharma and that the whole thrust of science is in discovering something new, whereas the primary concern for Dharma is in preserving something old, with occasional outbreaks of innovation. However, the scientific method that produces these results is a quite archaic empirical method for acquiring knowledge established in the 17th century. Relatively few in the general population will have the time, energy, or inclination to enter the Dharma deeply. What with land to plow, goods to bargain for, and children to raise. Indeed, the understanding of the typical lay Buddhist has been very limited or mistaken. This is much the same with science. Relatively few people develop deep scientific knowledge. Armchair scientists wonder what holds the moon up 
and why it's cold at the North Pole, the place closest to the sun. Yet the general population looks to the Sangha for education or clarification concerning the Dharma and to scientists for education or clarification concerning science. The early manifestation of the Dharma derived from what was taught literally by the Buddha. Scholars have a fairly good idea of what early Buddhism looked like before it began to undergo retelling, that is, before identifiable sects emerged. It consisted of two parts, the Dhamma and the Vinaya, the doctrine and the discipline. Roughly, the Pali suttas, particularly the Diga, Majjhima, Samyutta, and Anguttara Nikayas, as well as the Sutta Nipata and the Dhammapata of the Kudiga Nikaya, along with the equivalent Chinese Agamas, are acknowledged by scholars to constitute the most reliable evidence of the early Dharma. The Buddha and his early disciples seemed to have anticipated that what he had taught would change in different and unpredictable ways, and to have expressed his interest in preserving the functionality rather than the word or content of doctrine and discipline. First, the Buddha defined Dharma broadly to include whatever served the same narrowly defined functions. But go to me, those things of which you might know, these things lead to dispassion, not to passion, to detachment, not to bondage, to dismantling, not to building up, to fewness of desires, not to strong desires, to contentment, not to non-contentment, to solitude, not to company, to the arousing of energy, not to laziness, to being easy to support, not to being difficult to support. You should definitely recognize this is the Dhamma, this is the discipline, this is the teaching of the teacher. So Dharma was not strictly confined to the words of the Buddha, but includes whatever shares their function. Second, the great standards the Mahapadesa generalized recognizable teachings to novel or uncertain circumstances. A particular view that suggests itself under such a circumstance can be tested by standing it against the Dharma and the Vinaya, and if it accords, then it can be accepted. Indeed, the Dharma has evolved very slowly, diversifying into various sects and schools generally separated geographically. The earliest texts were originally preserved orally, then through transcription. Sometimes things were added or deleted, but the number of errors seemed to have been remarkably small. More significantly, new texts were added to the early corpus, such as the Mahayana suttas, for instance, the Lotus Sutra, composed many, many centuries after the Buddha but often displacing or at least obscuring the early texts. A number of pressures have conspired to alter the authentic meaning of the Dharma at various times in Buddhist history, 
and have often succeeded. These pressures continue to be present to this day. One is misinterpretation of the texts, whose sophistication makes them particularly vulnerable to this. For instance, early meanings are misinterpreted because the cultural context in which these meanings were understood is no longer present. Early teaching may fall into obscurity because they are no longer understood at all. Wildly accepted folk Buddhist understandings might be confused regionally with authentic understandings. More seriously, the function of the Dharma might be reconceived. There is a particularly strong tendency to turn the Dharma into a kind of speculative philosophy or theory of everything. Or the Dharma might be supplemented by new innovations or borrowings from other religious traditions. Examples of supplements of this kind are the integration of Tantric Hinduism into Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism, elements of Taoism into Zen, and the notion of Buddha nature into Mahayana Buddhism. Supplements in many cases are consistent with the early teachings and may improve them in some ways. Finally, as Buddhism has entered new lands and new cultures, there has been pressure to present the Dharma in new ways compatible with the mindset of that culture. This has certainly occurred in China, in which the general mindset of people is quite a bit different from the Indian mind. In order to establish the true Dharma, in spite of such pressures, a number of tools are available to the Sangha for critical assessment of particular teachings. Modern scholarship provides some more because it allows us to some extent to reconstruct the historical evolution of the Dharma and to provide some understanding of the cultural contexts in which Buddhist texts were originally composed. More broadly, we can test the Dharma or particular teachings for coherence, either internally as demanded by the great standards or externally for consistency with practice experience. Recall that Buddhism is a practice tradition and that the Dharma can be understood in its entirety as support for practice. If it fails to accord with what we experience in practice, something is amiss. We can think of the core of authentic Buddhism as a coherent functional system that shines through in early Buddhism. This functional aspect can be helpful in interpreting faulty, misspoken, or difficult early texts themselves to recognize what is really authentic. It suggests that it might sometimes be more interesting and helpful to ask when confronted with a particular teachings, not, is this really true, but rather, why was this said to lay bare the function of the teaching? For instance, there's constant reference to devas, godly beings, in the early texts. These are very old texts, of course, and of course they are going to have things that raise modern eyebrows. The question of whether devas really exist or whether, as Buddhists, we should believe in devas is of little consequence. Much more fruitful is the question, what role do these supernatural beings play in the texts? If they have no recognizable function, maybe they're not core teachings. 
In fact, devas in the text generally pop in on the Buddha, much like lay people, bowing to the Buddha and listening to discourses. They certainly are not there to demand worship or sacrifice. Instead, they venerate the Buddha and even the monks and generally act as cheerleaders for the Dharma. Their role, therefore, seems to have been largely rhetorical. It would have impressed the ancient Indians that even the gods look up to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The search for the functionality, if any, quickly reveals the connection of any particular element of the teachings to authentic Buddhism. As mentioned, the ancient scriptures are often an unreliable victim of ancient editing. However, seeking functionality can help the adept reader of the early scriptures interpret them properly. His task is like piecing together a jigsaw puzzle in which some pieces are missing and in which other pieces have been mixed in from other jigsaw puzzles. But at some point, he nevertheless recognizes, oh, I get it, this is the Golden Gate Bridge. At some point, a particular interpretation of the whole shines forth that one cannot easily back out of. Although it cannot be proven decisively and still admits of debate, the convergence of evidence from many sources becomes so overwhelming to those who see what shines through that doubt disappears. And what shines forth in each case is a functional system. The Buddha was a very systematic thinker. The Buddhist adept accomplished in Buddhist practice is in a far better position to witness this shining through than the mere scholar, because the former has his own practice experience as potentially confirming evidence. He is like the jigsaw enthusiast who has actually been on the Golden Gate Bridge, who is already familiar with its features and the contours of the land and seascape around it. Once the Golden Gate Bridge has shown through, it becomes the basis of interpreting the remaining unplaced pieces and rejecting some of those altogether as intruders from other people's jigsaw puzzles. Often what looks like even a radical scriptural change in a dharmic teaching does not actually change the function. However, it can be exceedingly difficult to actually trace a functional feature of authentic Buddhism from early Buddhism through different scriptural manifestations as found, for instance, in Chinese Mahayana or Tibetan Vajrayana, in order to make the case that the latter counterpart actually preserves the function of the original. The difficulty is compounded by the substitution of later texts for the earliest scriptures, which is endemic in the history of Buddhism. For instance, although many, including me, find Zen close to the Theravada forest tradition through actual experience in both traditions, there's a little strict textual basis for the connection. Part of the genius of Zen language as compared to Indian language is the former's minimalism, its ability to focus on the one thing upon which everything else hinges 
to describe that and let the rest find its place implicitly. Because of such subtleties, we must hope that the adepts have been ceasingly at work ensuring authenticity as these traditions have developed historically. By way of example, mindfulness practice is clearly a key functional element of early Buddhism, one formulated in the lengthy Satipatthana Sutta and in other early discourses. In Japanese Zen, there is a method of meditation that was named Shikantaza by Dogen Zenji, which clearly has something to do with mindfulness or awareness, but is described by Dogen with very concise instructions that are textually far removed from the Satipatthana. It would therefore be very difficult to make an argument for functional equivalence that would satisfy the scholar, but it would be feasible for an experienced practitioner. I'm fortunate personally to have trained in Shikantaza, and then many years later I studied the Satipatthana and modern Vipassana techniques, which, at least in this particular context, gave me something of an adept's insight into what shines through. I can definitively testify that there's an astonishing functional equivalent among these techniques. If my subjective testimony may be taken as reliable, this is one example of a feature of authentic Buddhism that has been carried historically through place and culture, evolving into a radically different manifestation scripturally, yet fully maintaining its authenticity right down to the punchline. This is the genius of the sasana. I hope this gives an idea of the challenge of maintaining the true dharma. We'll finish discussing the Sangha's mission statement next week.